This week on Myths and Legends, there are two stories from Japanese folklore about people going on quests. On the first, we'll see a friendship so strong that nothing can break it, except, you know, murder. On the second, it's a man with a dream to be a samurai. The problem? He's not a samurai. He's basically an office worker about to fight a dragon. The creature this week is someone who's been waiting to go out for 500 years, just all dressed up with no place to go. But she does not want to go out with you. And she will make that very clear by devouring you whole. This is Myths and Legends, episode 303, Rice and Means. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, there are two stories of people with big dreams and the things standing in their way. Sometimes it's a massive dragon. Sometimes it's themselves. Sometimes it's both. On the first, we're going to jump into a story of two friends taking a ferry ride, where one reveals that he's been on a quest the entire time. The fairy rocked back and forth. Tajima Shume took a seat next to the priest. Uh, they better settle in. It was going to be a rocky trip. Shume had been traveling with the priest for several months now. They met on the road when some would-be bandits were hassling the priest, and they were tough, but they weren't ronin. A masterless samurai. One look at Shume's swords, and they left the priest. The priest offered Shume enough money for safe travel to the next town, but by the time Shume and the priest made it there, the ronin refused the payment. He wouldn't take money from a friend. The pair continued on. In each town, they took up their respective jobs. The priest went to the local temples and sought alms on the street. The ronin took up jobs as a bodyguard for merchants or guarding trade caravans passing through. Shume was too proud to take on a different trade. He had spent his whole life learning to be a samurai, and he wouldn't go back to working with his hands for a living. He was also too proud to do what a lot of ronin did, and become a bandit. That was how you made the real money. His conscience wouldn't let him. At night, they would meet up in an inn, where Shume, the ronin, paid for wine in his room, and shared stories with the priest, and whoever else would listen. When the cash dried up for either of them, both the priest and the ronin continued on. Now, they were going to Kyoto, the big city. I'm done, the priest shared, beaming. Done? What do you mean, done? The ronin replied. I did it. My quest, my goal, I completed it. The priest leaned in close. The ronin didn't know that the priest had a quest, a goal? He thought they were like just rambling on together, and we keep doing so. What was the priest's quest? The priest said he knew he shouldn't care about such things. He had forsaken the world and all that, but his whole life, he had wanted to build a bronze statue of the Buddha. And he did it. Well, he finally had enough to do it. Throning thought back. Oh, come to think of it, the priest was a bit stingy. Where the ronin bought new shoes and robes and other stuff, the priest wore his clothes until they were practically falling off his body. He never overspent on food or drink. 
Somebody's going without completely. The boat was rocking, but the priest stood. Come here. He wanted to show the ronin something. Besides, he had to get up and move around. He couldn't stay seated. The river was too choppy and he was going to throw up. They didn't quite have their sea legs or river legs, so they staggered all the way to the baggage area. The priest loosened the string and more money than Shume the Ronin had ever seen in his whole life almost spilled from the bag. What in the world? He told the priest, a statue? This was enough to build a whole new temple and have some left over. The priest grinned. It would be so great. So in Kyoto, they would part. It had been fun, old friend. Shume was hit with all the feelings at once. First, his friend was leaving him. He couldn't stay in Kyoto long term. The capital was a place of lords and daimyo and samurai. He wouldn't be able to find the same types of jobs. And he'd be competing with a lot more ronin. But that wasn't the biggest thing. Shume wasn't just masterless. He was rudderless. He turned 40 that year. 40. He had no wife, no children. He was 40 and he was still a wanderer. Some people loved that life. Nothing against that. It was just now that Shume was realizing what he had given up by staying on the road. This time with the priest, with another person, had been a salve on that wound. But now, even the priest was moving on. Following his dreams, Shume would be alone again. He would keep on wandering. Shume said that he was happy for his friend. If he had that amount of gold, he could afford to change trades. Not something like a laborer, though. He could be a merchant. He could have his own estate. He could marry, have children. He said from the womb to the grave, a person's life was made out of good and bad luck. His had been bad. He left everything behind, trained relentlessly to live his life like he was dead, and then his master folded. He tried to find new work as a samurai, but couldn't stand out in the glut of ronin who hadn't had to work as hard, who were better connected, whose fathers knew people. Luck is merely how we view things, my friend, the priest said. Events themselves are neutral. He gulped. Oh. What? Shume asked. The priest shook his head and choked something back down. Uh, nothing, but they should get out of the baggage area. They emerged into the light, and Shume, the ronin, stepped forward to take in the sea breeze. He turned to his friend. What was wrong? He wasn't going to vomit, was he? It was the mention of vomiting that set the priest off. It was coming. He rushed for the back of the boat. Shume told himself. He told himself that he didn't know why he did it. He had killed before. He had been a samurai, but never with less effort than it took to end the life of his best friend. Sliding his foot forward six inches, so it caught the toe of the priest as he rushed toward the back of the boat. The priest stumbled into, then over, the railing. He landed with a splash. The ronin stood there for a long moment. What had he done? He had done something, though. 
he tripped his friend. He tripped his friend into the river because he wanted that money. The priest wasn't coming up. Footsteps pounded on the deck behind him. What was that? The sailor scrambled, searching the water, running for rope. Did someone fall in? The priest still wasn't coming up. My, my cousin. As soon as the words came out of Shume's mouth, the wind picked up from behind the boat. The men on the boat, the sailors, threw ropes into the water, but it was too late. The priest wasn't coming back up, and they were moving too quickly from the spot. He was my cousin. Shumei's shoulders slumped. They were both going to Kyoto. Shumei looked back at the spot of water. There was nothing that remained of the priest. Nothing except his baggage. Shumei handled all the reporting. He assured the ferry owners that he would send word to his cousin's patron and their family. He would take care of all of it. It was an accident, and there was no reason the ferry should be brought into any of this. They thanked him for his discretion, and none of them mentioned the death ever again. It was a week before he touched the priest's money. He had the bags. The ferry owners had given them to him. He, he was family, after all. But touching the money made it feel like he did it for the money. And he did do it for the money. He killed his best friend for money. He was worse than those bandit ronin on the road, he told himself. At least they don't betray the people that they kill. They don't deceive themselves into thinking they're not what they are. So he used the money. He did it, ostensibly, to survive and to make it so the priest's death wasn't in vain, wasn't for nothing. He hoped to burn through it, squander it, but something terrible happened. He was a success. Everything he touched blossomed. He doubled, tripled the money. He built an estate, changed his name to Tokube. He got married. In a few years' time, he had the life he was mourning on the boat, the one that he thought he would never have. And yet... He was miserable. The cool air of the garden at night whispered the priest's name. He felt like the walls and doors and floors of his house were coated in the man's blood. He could barely meet the eyes of his wife. He couldn't find joy in time with his baby. He was up one night. In the garden, as he was most nights, he couldn't lay there and think about the past. Shumei had to occupy his mind, and there, before him, a form took shape in the fog. The merchant, the former ronin, shook his head. No, no, that's impossible. It was the man he murdered. The priest he all but pushed off the edge of the boat. He was standing in front of the former ronin, hand outstretched. The ronin tried to turn and run, but the priest held his robe. He was trying to pull Shumei back into the mist to make Shumei suffer for his misdeeds. Shumei still carried a dagger on his belt. He struck out with the hilt and hit the ghost in the stomach. The man disappeared back into the fog. Shumei dared to look back behind him as he ran. The priest was one place in the fog, then another. The man 
was everywhere. We'll see how the Ronin deals with the specter haunting him relentlessly, but that will be right after this. You don't see him, Shumei said, pointing out at the garden from the bedroom window. The priest stood out there, watching. The wife rubbed the sleep from her eyes and looked again. See what? She pointed at nothing. Shumei pushed his way into the open window. He was just there. The wife said she was going back to bed. Things did not go well for Shumei after that. He screamed at everyone who would listen that the priest, the priest was out to get him. His ghost had returned somehow. He descended into delusion, madness. He saw the priest everywhere, in every shadow. Then a fever took him. One morning, while he was in a fitful sleep, his wife led a visitor into his room. The visitor asked for a few moments alone with the patient. Shumei's wife slid the door shut. Shumei blinked awake. It was all hazy. There was a form standing over him. Three years ago, at the Kuana Ferry, you flung me into the water and left me to die. Do you remember that? A voice whispered the breath hot in Shumei's ear. Shumei's eyes shot open, and the priest, or the ghost of the priest, was standing over him. Don't scream. She can't help you. No one can help you. Shumei's lip quivered. What did he want? I want you to face what you did, the form in front of the former samurai said. Shumei nodded and leaned back. He had been expecting this day for years. The time when he had to answer for his crimes. He would accept death. Please, make it quick, he breathed. It was time. What are you doing? The form asked Shumei. I'm, I'm waiting for death. It's what I deserve. A life for a life. My only regret is all my regret. Shumei still didn't open his eyes. I, I'm not going to kill you, the priest said. But you're his ghost. You said I would answer for what I did. The ronin still laid back, waiting for the end. Okay, two things. I said you would face what you did. There's a difference. Can't face it if you're dead. Also, second, I'm not a ghost. See, I have feet. The priest lifted up his feet. In Japanese folklore, ghosts don't have feet. FYI. The ronin sat up. Wait, what? I could swim, the priest said. Yeah, it was a shock when he fell overboard, and it was scary when the current took him under. But within moments, he struggled free and swam for shore. By that time, the ferry was on the opposite bank. He tried looking his friend up, but Kyoto was a big place, and he changed his name? It was only by chance that he was visiting the temple across the street and out for a walk one night. He tried to say hi, but Shumei tried to run and then hit him in the stomach. Ow. Shumei broke down, rising enough to hug the priest's stomach and soak his robe with tears. His friend was alive. Shumei was so sorry. 
The priest said Shumei had been living with this guilt for years, right? Shumei nodded, wiping tears and snot on his friend's clothes. He only begged his friend's forgiveness. The priest took his friend's hand. He had forgiven Shumei even before he reached the shore. He didn't come back for vengeance or for his own satisfaction, but what kind of priest would he be if he did? He came back because he knew his friend was suffering. They traveled long enough together for the priest to know that Shumei was a good man. A man who would feel guilt over what he did. And a guilty man shudders at the rustling of the wind. His conscience preys on his mind until he sees what isn't there. The priest didn't need to return, but he wanted the ronin to be free. Shumei sat stunned. What? The priest grinned and clasped his hands. Change your life. Live a life of virtue. But your money, your statue. The ronin rolled from bed and lifted up a board on the floor. He scooped some money into a bag and held it out. This was double what he stole from the priest years ago. The priest shrugged. Thanks, but he didn't need it. He had gone right back to it, told the people his story, and over the course of a year, got it all back. The ronin didn't understand. He could have come to Kyoto and brought charges against Shumei. Could have found him. The old priest threw up his hands. What could he say? He wanted his friend to have the life that he had been dreaming of. The ronin wouldn't let him leave without taking the money, so the priest took it and donated it directly to the temple, in the ronin's name. And the two were friends once again, the ronin and the priest that he murdered. They just didn't take any more boat rides together. I like this story because the priest knew that the ronin was not a bad guy. He says as much, saying that need can lead people down a dark path and it's not always their fault. The ronin was his own worst enemy. Through his own actions and his years of guilt, he needed to confront the past and move on. And his friend helped him do that, despite the attempted murder. The next story is of a man with a different problem, like the exact opposite problem. He has a boring cushy life and he wants to be a samurai. So you know what? He's gonna go for it. Hidesatono Fujiwara was bored. He was bored. He told his advisor that he was gonna go looking for adventure. You can't? His servant told him. I am a high-ranking bureaucrat, servant to the emperor, Hidesato gasped, indignant. Yeah, that's my point, the servant said. There was a lot of paperwork, decisions that had to be made. Hidesato face-palmed, look, he was going to let the servant in on a little secret. The bureaucrats didn't do much. How difficult was it to give the order for more stuff to be planted, or yes, you can build that, or no, don't execute that guy, that's not an oni, he just had a bunch of berry juice on his face. The servant uh, didn't say that, yes, he knew making common sense edicts wasn't difficult, but someone had to do it. And Hidesato was that someone. And that's all I am. Some placeholder. 
And the servant said, yes, is that bad? It was better than, you know, working. But Hidesato wasn't paying attention. He was staring wistfully at the bow, the bow and the two swords, the swords of his grandfather, the samurai. He looked to his servant. Did his servant know that he was a samurai too? It was in his blood. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not how it works, the servant said. The samurai trained from a super young age. The bureaucrat, Hidesato, had learned to shoot a bow, but that was like at camp when he was young. Hidesato, the last of the samurai. Hidesato slung the bow over his shoulder. The servant said that they were in the meaty part of the Edo period. There were still samurai, sure, but they were grappling with a changing world and looking to an over-idealized past where they had more power and influence. And yeah, a lot of the books you read about the samurai code come from this time when samurai were largely bureaucrats, but the servant looked to the wall, devoid of swords and bow. Cool. He left. The servant hoped he didn't die, not because he particularly liked Hidesato, but because he would be out of a job. We'll see the bureaucrat's samurai adventure, but that will, once again, be right after this. Hidesato looked through his hat down the road. The dust swirled. The swords clinked at his belt as he walked through town, looking for trouble. Well, Oni, Goblin, even Tanuki trouble. No other samurai, though. Anyone still super into that was not someone you wanted to be messing with. I mean, Hidesato knew he could totally take anyone in a duel over a weird look or not saying something the right way, but he wasn't really in the dueling mood right now. Not a good duel day. By the way, I've done some research over the years for this podcast, and the samurai stuff is kind of wild. Like, two guys walking. One guy brushes the other with his cloak by accident. Duel to the death. Doesn't like the way the other guy said hi. Both of them eviscerate the other. It's kind of like I said before the break just now. A lot of these accounts were written in a time when violent, dueling samurai ruling over everyone was largely a thing of the past and samurai had turned into bored nobles looking for an idealized, hyper-violent history they could yearn for. So stuff like that might not be 100% accurate. Anyway, our hero, who definitely wasn't experiencing a midlife crisis, sat down for lunch at a restaurant and learned of the dragon. Wait, a legit dragon, Hidesato said, nearly spitting out his sake. Seriously? Yeah? Seriously, the waiter said, setting the plates down. The dragon sat on the bridge of Seto no Karashi, the one that spans Lake Biwa. Hidesato helpfully filled in some details in a plot-relevant manner. The very same, the waiter nodded. Yeah, the dragon was the width of a large pine. His claws rested on one side of the lake and his tail on the other. He slept there, and every time he exhaled, smoke escaped his nostrils. A few coins rattled on the table, as Hidesato downed all the food and drink he could in a few seconds and rushed from the restaurant. He had found his quest. And it was super scary. He was thinking of like the skinny pines, but that waiter had really undersold things. But the waiter was right about one thing. 
a dragon slept on the bridge that spanned the lake. Hirisato rethought his decision to fight the thing. Even jamming his sword into the monster's head seemed like an ill-advised decision. He didn't want to go back into town. He looked across the bridge. You know what? He could do it. He could bravely step around the sleeping dragon. That had to count for something, right? He didn't see any other samurai stepping gingerly around the scales here. Maybe Hidesato wouldn't get a song sent for him, but a poem, maybe? A limerick? I don't know. He started his walk. And it went well. Once he got past the smoke of the thing's nose stinging his eyes, he could see a lot better. He could avoid the hooked, gnarled claws of the hand. The slowly rising and falling scales were harder than steel. The claws in the monster's feet, and then his tail, Hidesato breathed again when he touched land. All right, good. He had done it. Hey, he heard behind him. He froze as the tail slid from the dirt and toward the bridge. Hidesato's heart pounded as he dared to turn his neck. When he did, he saw the dragon compressing. It was weird. The dragon was all moving toward one spot. The hair, the scales, the claws, it was all taking the form of a man. A man whose long, bright red hair fell on his shoulders. Shoulders that were clothed in sea-green fabric and covered in shell armor. When the last of the smoke dissipated, a crown shined on the man's head. Did you just walk past me? The man asked. Hidesato said, yes, yes he did. Oh, okay, that's something, the man said, and started to pace. Hidesato smiled. All right, that was what he thought. Something. You weren't going to challenge me, the man asked. Hidesato said he, he thought about it for sure, but it didn't seem honorable. Let's say honorable. The man bobbed his head back and forth. Uh, okay, he explained his situation. He had been waiting here at this bridge for a samurai to challenge him, but he had been here for a few days already and nothing. Hidesato said, yeah, it was a weird time for the samurai right now. But you, you were the only one to even approach the bridge, the man pointed to Hidesato with a smile. Hidesato didn't say that it would take too long to walk around and the forest could be full of who knows what and he couldn't go back to the village in shame. So he smiled. Yes. Yes, I did. I have a request for you, brave samurai, the man said. He said the samurai might not know this, but he was the dragon king of the lake. Hidesato couldn't believe what he was hearing. I mean, could believe it, he just watched a dragon compress into a man wearing a crown, so all that tracked. But the Dragon King, wow, yes, if it was in his power to do it, he would help. The Dragon King said, well, I mean, a Dragon King. Remember, he was the Dragon King of this lake. The Dragon King of the Sea was a much bigger deal. Uh, he didn't live in a coral palace, he lived, well, under this bridge. Hidesato was a little disappointed, but still, impressed. Dragon King, wow. The Dragon King of the lake pointed to the mountain, the one visible and not terribly far from the lake. Up on that mountain, an evil, 
centipede lives. Hirisato looked. Oh, wow. Wait, centipede? The Dragon King continued. Every night, it attacked one of the Dragon King's children. Hirisato said, wow, sorry about that. That's got to be annoying. The Dragon King said it was, for sure. But Hirisato was the first. He was the first samurai to come to this bridge. And he would be the hero to save the lake. Now, Hirisato might have asked why the Dragon King didn't just go himself to fight a centipede. Seemed like a reasonable thing to want to know. But Hirisato was consumed. Consumed by the adventure. This was what he was seeking when he left his house. This was why he picked up his grandfather's bow and swords. This was the type of adventure from the old stories. This was his time, and he would not shirk from it. A giant bubble rose to the surface of the lake as the king leapt from the bridge. In the air, he grew and transformed back into the dragon before sliding into the water. Hirisato followed his lead and stepped onto the bubble. It closed around him and he descended into the lake. As the light faded from the surface above, a new light grew below. It was the palace, the palace of the dragon king of the lake. The bubble stayed around Hirisato the whole time. Let's pretend it like molded to his body so he could interact with stuff and speak. Goldfish, red carp, and silvery trout scurried to take his cloak and things, which were immediately waterlogged. And the dragon king beckoned Hirisato inside. After a great dinner of uh, who knows what, it doesn't say, fish do eat other fish though, so I don't know if there was some like monstrous component to the fish justice system in the kingdom of the lake, but Hirisato pushed the crystallized lotus plate back inside. That was a great dinner. Next up, goldfish dancers. Hirisato said it was fantastic. Maybe. He didn't know, it all just looked like swimming to him. The other fish played koto and shamisen and drums. Hours passed like this. And then the palace lurched. The fish fled to the stairways, and the water slowly drained out. The palace was emerging from the lake. It was time. Hirisato had almost forgotten. Oh, yeah. Time to kill the bug. Okay, let's do it. He picked up his stuff. Where was the little guy? Centipede, right? The Dragon King, now back in human form, rose and went to the window. He pointed to the mountain. There. Water still dripped down into the lake as Hirisato looked off to Mikami Mountain to the centipede that was wrapped around it. The monster treated the mountain like ants treat an anthill. Trees and rocks crumbled under its hundred feet, all lit up themselves. Then the fire. Two fiery orbs peered on the mountaintop. Oh, it's awake. It's coming. Wait, it has fire eyes? Wait, when you said centipede, I thought you meant like a little bug. This thing is wrapped around a mountain. Hidesato didn't realize he was screaming. Why would that be a problem for me? I'm a dragon. The dragon king also didn't realize he was screaming. They were having a night. Okay, okay, this will all be okay, Hirisato lied. Eros, where is Eros? Unless he could get close enough to run up the thing, running a sword along its back until it froze and burst in half or something anime style, which would be really cool. He needed arrows, and why did he just have three arrows left? 
The Dragon King winced. Yeah, his fish servants weren't great at handling wood. And wood floats. They were off looking for the other arrows, but only three stayed in the quiver. Hidisato knocked an arrow. Well, it would have to do. The eyes. The eyes were looking at him now, coming closer. The darkness consumed the sky behind them. Hidisato aimed upward, breathed deep, and let the arrow fly. And it was the perfect shot. It was, actually. It hit the giant looming centipede right between the eyes. And because it was a giant magical centipede, the arrow glanced off without even nicking the exoskeleton. Why did that happen? You saw that, right? Should I try again? Dragon King? The Dragon King was cowering at the other end of the room. His children were so dead, and worst of all, him eventually. He rocked back and forth, weeping. The bureaucrat, Hidesato, didn't know what else to do, so he knocked another arrow, let it fly, and yeah, another direct hit, right between the eyes. Once again, it did nothing. The monster was closing in now. Hidesato didn't know what came next, but knew that the monster wouldn't let him live. He had only wanted to be a samurai, go on an adventure, like his grandfather. His grandfather. His grandfather. Hidesato was a boy, sitting on his grandfather's lap. Hit the fire crackling in the background, his parents preparing something in the next room. He was listening to his grandfather's stories, his wisdom about the world. Now, my grandson, if you should ever go up against a magical centipede, remember this one weird trick. Hidesato gasped back to reality to the present day in the mostly dripped dry palace of the Dragon King, with a lake's worth of fish in the water below, popping up and looking at the centipede about to consume them all. The Dragon King, roused from his trauma, looked up at Hirisato. Why was he licking the arrow? Hirisato was really coating the thing in his saliva, just really getting it in there. Their weakness, the weakness for centipedes is human saliva. The Dragon King cocked his head, really? Hidisato nodded, yes. His grandfather had told him. One minute though, he had to save all of them. He spun around, shot the arrow, and hit the centipede for the third time between the eyes. This time though, instead of glancing off, it sunk in. It sunk in and shot through the brain. The lights went out. The lantern feet faded. The shadow lurched to the ground, and the earth shuddered. It was over. The centipede was dead. So that's how I became the hero of our time, the last true samurai. Retired, though, now, so no need for anyone to challenge that name, and uh, there are no other names that I go by, Hidesato told the villagers that surrounded him. They said that was nice. Could they have the rice now? Hidesato sighed. Yeah, the rice, that's right. That's what everybody wants. That day, the sun had risen on the body of the giant centipede, but as soon as the light touched it, it turned into smoke and disappeared. The fish had cheered their gurgly fish way, it was really weird, and the palace descended back into the lake. 
where the Dragon King threw another feast, and this time it does say they ate fish. The Dragon King tried to get Hidesato to stay, but as much as Hidesato wanted to sit for hours and watch fish twirl in what he could only assume was fish dancing, he also had heard the story of Yurashimataro. He didn't want to pop back home 300 years later. He should really be going. So, the Dragon King gave him a few tokens of appreciation. A bronze bell, which was a bell and really heavy, Hidesato donated it to the temple back home as soon as he could. A roll of silk that never grew shorter, no matter how it was cut. A cooking pot that cooked food perfectly without heat. So, basically a microwave. And finally, the bag of rice. It was a bag of rice that would never lower, no matter how much rice was taken from it. Its supply was inexhaustible. Hidesato and his household tried, but no matter how much they took, it never ran out. So each week he would open it up to the village. They could come take as much rice as they needed. They just had to listen to the story of how he got it. It wasn't mandatory, but there was no way they were getting that rice without first listening to the story. Thank you, the peasant said, bowing. You are truly a blessing to the people of this village, my lord bag of rice. Oh, it's not that one. It's the last true samurai. Hidesato trailed off, though he knew it was kind of pointless. My lord bag of rice. The next person bowed. Hidesato sighed and scooped the rice. The story is from The Dragon King and The Lore Bag of Rice. The original skips a lot of the bureaucratic stuff, but I found that this character was based on a real guy, a bureaucrat, and that juxtaposition really appealed to me. Next week on the podcast, there are two stories from Celtic folklore of the witches and the fairy people lurking among us. If you'd like to support the show, for less than the price of extra strength fart spray, you can get ad-free and bonus episodes that, well, hopefully aren't as vomit-inducing as extra-strength fart spray. No promises. Check out mythpodcast.com membership or check us out on Apple Podcasts for more info on the membership. The creature this time is the blue woman, the Aonyobo from Japanese folklore. One time when I was a kid in the 90s, I was hiking with some friends and my dad when we were on vacation, and we went off trail and came upon these abandoned houses, like big, partially ruined vacation homes deep in the mountains. As a kid, it ruled. It was like a time a box fell on my sister's dollhouse in the basement and caved in the roof. There were these often gaping holes, and the 60s and 70s era appliances rusting inside, so it was obvious no one was living there. And we looked in and saw the snapshot of whatever made these people flee their homes. A tree collapsing, a fire, but like 20 or 30 years prior. Looking back, I have no idea why they were there. All I know is, I was lucky to escape with my life. Not because of the incredible structural damage to a house that was partially collapsed and left rotting for years in the mountains, but because of the blue lady. When mansions are abandoned, dangerous creatures will take up residence. We've seen this in other stories from Japanese folklore but only one spirit arrives in style, the blue lady. Only her styles are out of fashion and her dresses are rotting and moth-eaten because she's been waiting for a long, long time. Who is she waiting for? Well, 
no one really knows. An honored guest, a potential husband, a guy who was not her husband. The takeaway is that it's not you because while she's a rich girl, your kiss is not on her list. She's out of touch, sure, she's been there for centuries, but sadly, you're the one who's now out of time because you might be a family man who's not looking for anything one-on-one. -on -one. Misunderstanding the situation, you might say, they don't, I can't go for that, no can do, but she's a man-eater. Like, literally, but she won't chew you up, she eats people whole. And if you stuck with me through that incredibly self-indulgent reference, you're making my dreams come true. Yeah, in addition to eating whatever people left in the house, she'll get annoyed that you're showing up unannounced and uninvited, devour you whole, and then get back to her waiting, which would be tragic if she wasn't murdering people. The name, Nyobo, is like a courtly lady of old Japan, whose job it was to attract a husband and then hang around the house all day. Ao means blue, which, according to one reference I linked in the show notes, means immature or inexperienced. No matter how hard they tried, they can never seem to elevate themselves or attract a spouse. They're like the Lady Edith of old Japan if she also murdered people and ate them whole. A lot of the times, these courtiers would be forced to grow old in their mansion, seething and resentful for a world that had passed them by, of which they would never be a part. So, let that be a lesson to us all. Let go of your resentments, live the life you have, and most importantly, don't murder people and eat them. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to some of the other music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>